This is Liam Hendricks, and you're watching Crosstown Crosstalk on the Byroom Network. Some may find the following disturbing. Discretion is advised. Every summer in Chicago, the sunshine spotlights the city's spectacular skyline, its luxurious lakeshore, marvelous monuments, and the over 200 neighborhoods in the city. And it also brings to light two of the greatest sports franchises in the world. On the north side, it's the Cubs. On the south side, it's the White Sox. This is Crosstown Crosstalk. Hello, and welcome to another very exciting episode of Crosstown Crosstalk presented by the Barroom Network. My name is Vinny Parisi. And I'm wearing a Boston Red Sox shirt because their next opponent is the Chicago Cubs. Isn't that funny? Earlier this week, the Chicago White Sox, on the other hand, really don't give me much room to be making fun of anyone because they stink. They lost a series. One game they won, two games they lost to the Los Angeles Angels. Are we still calling them the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim? I don't think we are. They're just the Los Angeles Angels. But they might as well be called these days the Los Angeles Shohei Otanis because Shohei Otani if I'm being very, very clear with you all, is the most spectacular athlete on planet Earth, okay? Otani, he has 17 home runs. 17. That would be leading the White Sox by like nine, okay? Then he goes out there every fifth day, and he throws a 100-mile-an-hour fastball with a nice little splitter mixed in every couple pitches and is one of the best pitchers on planet Earth. He's legitimately in the Cy Young conversation. He's if you took Luis Robert at his best and Michael Kopech as at his best and put them into one player. And there's nobody I would rather talk about Shohei Otani with than fan-sided's own Evan Desai. He runs the Reign of Troy USC page in addition to Halo Hangout, obviously the Los Angeles Angels page. Evan, how we doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing, bro? It's good to kind of see you kind of put a face to the name for the first time. I've known you virtually, but, you know, to be able to be on the pod with you is an honor. Honestly, I love this podcast. I listened to it before. Absolutely. Very happy to hear that. I'm glad you enjoy it. I'm very happy to have you on. It's an honor for me as well. I appreciate the kind words. And, you know, first of all, how's it going with Halo Hangout? You having some success there? Yeah, I'm having some, some success. It's just uh, I kind of wish the team was having a little bit more success, kind of make it a little bit more fun. But you know, the one good thing about it is that kind of no matter how the team's doing, I at least have something to look forward to watching Showtime play. And this year with Trout, obviously he was hurt last year. But so I'm able to watch some great players just kind of trying to see some, some winning at a high level, too. So we'll see. But, you know, it's not really not looking like it's going to happen this year. Yeah, for real. So early in Shohei's career, rookie of the year, I think he had 10 wins, which is fair for a a rookie starting pitcher obviously the rookie of the year was large in part because of the fact that he did pitch but also he was a really good hitter then he had the tommy john missed time as a pitcher but he did plenty of hitting in the meantime um i'm curious to know though i think the thing that has improved he's improved in every area of the game over the last couple of years but i think the pitching is really what has climbed to the top because he was at the top hitting last year the pitching was pretty good but this year he's like an all-world pitcher in the cy young conversation what have you seen that has led to the improvements as a pitcher? I think it's really the arsenal. You know, obviously you mentioned the splitter. It's it's deadly. Obviously, he's got the fastball. He's got the velo there. And, you know, there is a little bit of questions overall. If he's playing two ways, he's really going to have that kind of extra oomph on his fastball. But he's definitely been able to keep it. You know, he's got good breaking stuff. I think that it's really – I think he has an arsenal that's really good. I know that um, listening to this podcast before, you guys had a Rob Friedman on. A pitching ninja and he talked uh, recently on a Ben Verlander's podcast about how he thinks that Shelly Otani is actually a better pitcher than a hitter and you know when you look at the numbers it, it kind of backs that up you know 268 ERA 253 fielding independent pitching a 254 Sierra and you kind of maybe question it because hitting is down this year kind of across the league but when you look at the 147 ERA plus you realize that he is there at the top of the game and he is one of those top tier guys and you know, maybe maybe Alvarez will be the DH for the All-Star game, but, I mean, you got to give Shoyo Otani that nod, at least for the pitching. And the interesting thing about it is that, you know, he's doing this while giving up his lower half, 
while he's hitting every day. You know, to be able to kind of do that without the power that he would have on the mound due to him kind of giving up his body, you know, 162 games a year, I think it really just puts it in perspective of how good his stuff is and how good he is mentally. I never really put a lot of thought, and, and I'm a big Shohei Otani fan, right? Like, I, I watch the White Sox. Obviously, the Cubs are here in town. I, I watch a fair amount of the Red Sox, Yankees, you know, the popular teams. But I'm locked in Angels baseball because of Shohei Otani. But I never really thought about the fact that, you know, his splits might be different when he's hitting versus only hitting versus when he's pitching and hitting at the same time. And yesterday, Steve Stone, the White Sox color commentator, brought up the fact that he's actually on most nights of even better hitter on days that he's pitching. And last night going over three while he was on the mound is kind of like an outlier. Do you agree with this analysis from Steve Stone or the splits actually in favor of Otani's bat when he's pitching? The interesting, interesting thing is that the splits kind of are, I mean, the splits are in favor. Um, Otani actually says that he likes, he thinks that it makes him better on both sides due to the fact that he can play both sides, you know, I guess it's kind of that mental aspect of it. You know, a lot of times in the past, you know, there'll be a DH who's struggling. They put him at first base or whatever. Then he starts to hit again. You know, kind of takes his mind off of hitting. I do think there is an element there to where Otani can kind of get his mind off of hitting when he's pitching, get his mind off of the mound when he's in the box. And I think that that kind of does help him kind of focus up mentally. Um, the physical element is certainly there, though, like I mentioned. You know, obviously, you know, he's taken a lot out of a lot out of himself, a lot out of his body when he's taking on this extra workload. But, you know, knowing the kind of gamer that Otani is, it's not too surprising, you know, that he brought up those splits and how Otani actually is just as effective and oftentimes even more when he's doing both at the same time. For sure. The Sox have a guy like that, Eloy Jimenez. He always says when he DHs, he sucks. And when he's playing left field, he can hit it to Pluto. It's like you think about it. Critic, you think about it like quickly and you're like, oh, no, that's a bunch of BS. But then when you think about it critically, it's everything you just said about like, you know, taking your mind off of it and having the proper mindset here and there. But there's a lot of there was some debate last year whether or not Otani would win the most valuable player in the American League. And there were a lot of people waving the flag for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who had a slightly better offensive season but he didn't go out there and pump a just over three ERA. And if you're thinking about what is the most valuable player, it's obviously Otani, even if he's the fifth best hitter and third best pitcher, he's still together the best player in baseball. He was unanimously voted as the MVP though, despite all of the, you know, talk about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Nobody actually had the stones to go out there and vote for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Do you think that's going to be the case again this year? And if, if there is somebody to challenge him, I know there's Alvarez, Judge. Like, who's in that mix for you? I mean, the unfortunate thing is that I think that people are kind of experiencing Otani fatigue. You know, they're kind of used to his greatness, used to him doing things as a two-way player like this, and they kind of look past it and even heard some ridiculous takes like, oh, well, if Otani's the MVP in 2022 again, might as well just name the award after him. Okay, let's do that then. If he's that good, let's do that then. So, you know, it's kind of – Everyone's talking about Aaron Judge, and I get it. You know, I, I come from a line of Yankees fans, you know, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, all that. I know how good Aaron Judge is, and I love Aaron Judge. You know, he's, he's one of my favorite players. But at the same time, you know, like you said, the most valuable player to the team and to the league is Otani. To the team, obviously, because he's, you know, what a 139 WRC-plus hitter. And like I said, a 147 ERA-plus pitcher. Obviously, he's two great players in one, no question. Anyone would take that on their team over anybody. I don't, I don't care – what anyone else says about any other players, that's just the reality. And to the league, you got to, you know, people are saying, oh, well, the Yankees are, are the number one team right now. Okay, well, Shohei Otani saved baseball. So the most valuable player to the league, if we're being honest, is Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani is a household name to anybody, any sports fan, not baseball fan. Everybody knows Shohei Otani because, like you said, he's the best athlete on planet Earth. And to me, it's not even close. I mean, being able to do two jobs in one, the way he does it, in one of the most competitive athletic leagues in the world, he's the guy. And you also have to factor in the fact that he's bringing in fans all over the world. So while the Yankees success right now, which is largely fueled by Aaron Judge, is kind of taking the league by storm. Shohei Otani is taking the world by storm. I don't know if you know what's going on in Japan, but they go crazy for Shohei Otani, even though the team's not even playing well. And I mean, what he's bringing to the game worldwide is something that I mean, I don't think I've never seen in my lifetime. And I don't know if it's ever happened before. You know, the kind of spark that he's providing the league when it was much needed and that same thing has, you know, contributed this year. And you look at, you know, the wars up this year. Um, the RBIs are up this year. The doubles are up this year. Like, he's an even better player, obviously, as a pitcher. I mean, he's got career best ERA. 
feeling independent pitching, SIERA, striking out more guys than ever. He's a significantly better pitcher. And even as a hitter, he's maintained that success. So to me, he's got to be MVP, but I'm just worried that, you know, that fatigue will kind of set in. Aaron Judge being on the Yankees, you know, that powerful brand that's a powerful team in the league right now, what, you know, could potentially really end up propelling him to be the MVP. But I like that recently, especially after last night, there are a lot of debates I saw online about, you know, should Shohei Otani be there? And I think he should absolutely be there. And hopefully those those kind of discussions will be louder and people realize how dominant Shohei Otani really is and, and not take it for granted. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Yesterday we were watching the game and obviously I'm blacked out of seeing any Angels broadcast when they're playing against the White Sox. So I'm watching the NBC Sports Chicago broadcast, which I like hearing outsiders perspectives of Otani too. And you know, the broadcast, they show White Sox fans in the stands mostly, but even on the road team's broadcast, you were able to tell that there was just an extra bit of electricity in the ballpark when Otani's on the mound compared to Syndergaard, who has been like in the World Series, like a top flight pitcher for a long time back when he in his early days with the New York Mets, you know, like the Thor days. But, you know, the things Otani does for this league, both on and off the field, are unparalleled. And Otani fatigue, man, that scares me. Because, like, we deal with it in other sports, too. Like, in hockey, McDavid and Matthews are, like, the two best players in the league. And one of them is going to win the MVP for the next 10 years. And people are going to get annoyed. But it's like, they're the two. They deserve it. That That's what makes Hall of Famers. Nobody complained when Ken Griffey Jr. was up for it every single year. Like, that wasn't a problem. And if Otani deserves it, he deserves it. I'm, I'm with you. I hope he, he continues to be in that mix. And then, of course you think about the other guy on his team that knows a thing or two about winning an MVP and that's Mike Trout. So I got to ask you as somebody who follows the angels closely, is this Otani's team now, or does Mike Trout still have a little bit of something to say about this best player in baseball business? So it's complicated. I mean, I think as of right now, you have to give the nod to Otani as the best player at the current moment, because he's doing both, you know, at the same time, pitching and hitting, like I said, that value he provides, you know, it's immeasurable. I mean, you know, he's, he's obviously doing something that, Nobody has done in over 100 years. But the thing about Trout is that, you know, I feel like, you know, a lot of times we're having these discussions about who's the best player. It's still going to end up being Trout because he's done this for 11 years now. You know, it's just kind of that it's not I wouldn't call it longevity because a lot of times you for longevity, you're talking about, oh, guys are still productive over a long period of time. I mean, Trout's still elite and he's been this whole time. So it's a complicated discussion because I feel like right now, these past two years, it's obviously been Otani. You know, even though I don't understand Trout was hurt last year, I mean, the value Otani provides to a team is just immense. But I do think that there's there's kind of two definitions of the best player in baseball. And I think that Trout also kind of owns his share of that definition because of how dominant he's been over such a long period of time. And, and he really seems to just not be able to stop. His consistency is just kind of off the charts. Otani's in year four of being good. He's in year two of being the best. And Trout has been doing this for over a decade. So – do you think Mike Trout, when it's all said and done, will be considered to be the greatest player who ever lived? Because he's absolutely in that conversation. Looking at his career war at his age against somebody else with career wars like that over an entire career is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, it's tough because I feel like that depends on who you talk to in the sense that some people have more respect for certain eras than others. You know, so a lot of times you're comparing, you know, Trout to, okay, well, who else is the best of all time? Is it you know, Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, Barry Bonds, you know, a lot of guys will kind of dismiss some of those older players because it was in an era where they think the players were lesser. And, uh, and I mean, that that's, you know, an argument that some people have. Um, I personally am pretty neutral to that. I think there were great parts about every era. So you really got to look at it as, you know, in my, in my situation, who is neutral to the whole era's debate, you got to look at who he is right now. And as far as the kind of the, the slash line and those types of numbers, the rates, I mean, if he continues this, like you said, he absolutely could be. The question is going to be how how far can he kind of raise his total numbers? How far can the home runs get to the hits, the RBIs? Can he continue to play elite defense? Can he be able to kind of sustain that to where when you look at the total numbers at the end of his career, is he in comparison to, you know, the Willie Mays, the Griffies, you know, the Babe Ruths, the Barry Bonds, whoever you think it is, that's really going to tell. So that's the thing that's tough about if I think Trout will end up being the best player of all time when it's said and done, because right now at this rate, that's nowhere near out of the realm of possibility. You know, he's absolutely going to be in that conversation. It's just how can he age? How can he can he get better with age? You know, like Barry Bonds, for instance, you know, can he 
can he raise those all-time numbers? Can he be at the top of the leaderboards? I think that'll be able to tell. So it's so hard to say right now, but at this rate, to answer your question, you know, he's absolutely going to be at least one of the names in the discussion. He, he, he will probably be on the Mount Rushmore if he continues to play at this rate for the rest of the contract. Sure. Two-part question here. Face of baseball, Shohei Otani, and he's the greatest living athlete in your opinion? Yeah, I, I do think so. I think that, you know, like I said, while Trout's been at this for a long time, um, you know, I understand there were guys like Fran Otatis last year that really kind of, well, last two years, really, they really kind of raised their profile. I know Aaron Judge is kind of on top of the world right now, but, I mean, yeah, the face of the game is Shohei Otani because, like I said, he saved the game. And, like I said, he he is a face of the game around the world. Like, people overseas know baseball, know Major League Baseball because of Otani, and, and they follow it very closely because of Otani. In Japan, there's, like, I forgot what the number is. It, it's well over 10, though full-time Shohei Otani reporters, not full-time Angels reporters, full-time Shohei Otani reporters. He's that big a deal. So is he the face of baseball? I absolutely think so. I mean, look at last year, like Trout got hurt. Um, you know, some of the big brands, like friends, like the Yankees were down. Um, you know, some of those other kind of big market teams, the Phillies, the Cubs were down. There was a whole spider tack controversy. And, and every chance anyone got, everyone talked about how, oh, basketball and football are passing baseball. Oh, baseball's not the same sport anymore. Oh, it's a, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a niche sport, all that. The one thing we still kept talking about, though, was Shohei Otani. He kept the game relevant. So he's a face of baseball to me. And as far as the best athlete in the world, I don't even think I have to explain that one. You know, you've kind of hit on that already. You know, nobody in any sport is playing both sides of the ball and doing it at an elite level. No one's even playing both sides of the ball. You know, I mean, it, it, everyone's I remember people saying Debo Samuel is the Shohei Otani of football. You can get out of here with that. OK, he's not the Shohei Otani of football. He's a a good running back, good receiver. He's not, you know, a great receiver and great defensive back. You know, it, they're not the same. So hitting is the hardest thing to do in sports. To be able to hit at an elite level is the hardest thing to do in sports. He's also preventing everyone else from doing that on the mound. So he's the best athlete in the world. No no question. Yeah. I think saying the Shohei Otani of football, like Patrick Mahomes would have to be a Khalil Mack or Aaron Donald level pass rusher. Yeah. Or Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews would have to play goalie every fifth game. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know if there's a basketball comparison, but like it's it's the same type of thing with those two sports. Like that is literally, and McDavid or Matthews would have to play goalie at like a high level every fifth game. They wouldn't be able to be like a like Otani is elite at both pitching and hitting. And man, people who get Otani fatigue, if you're watching this and you have Otani fatigue, I, I'm sorry. I'm just so in love with this storyline. He's just the most spectacular player I've ever seen. I'm sure you feel the same, obviously. No question. No question. So that begs kind of like the hard question here. And I don't like asking this because I wish this wasn't true. They're not in my division. They're probably my, if I had to pick a team to cheer for from the American League West, Otani or no Otani, I would probably choose the Angels. I was obsessed with Angels in the outfield when I was a kid. Um, why can't they win? They have the two best players in the world, and I know baseball's a team sport. Like, you know, one guy can't carry a team. Judge has been on the Yankees for all this time, and now they're finally, you know, a really good team. But these guys are really good. Why can't the Angels figure it out around them? I mean, it really starts from the top down. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of cultural issues within the Angels organization. Um, you know, to say the least, you know, Artie Moreno is a very bad owner uh, to me. Uh, you're in the L.A. market. I know that it's really an Anaheim team. You know, us as fans don't even like the whole Los Angeles Angels thing, you know. But you're competing in that market, basically. And you're looking at the Dodgers who bring on studs every single offseason. You're looking at the Rams who somehow find cap room out of nothing all the time. The Clippers bring in Kawhi, Paul George. The Lakers, all they have three stars. You know, fortunately, they aren't a very good team, but just they, they're aggressive. They go after the big names. Um, you know, uh, UCLA brought in Chip Kelly. USC brought in Lincoln Riley. You know, the L.A. teams go for glamour. They go for stars. And when you look at the Angels who are trying to compete in that market, they have Artie Moreno, who's not one of the lesser owners in terms of money. He, he's, he's a very rich man. And – He's in this L.A. market and he refuses to hit the luxury tax threshold. You know, he refuses to spend up to that level. And so then you're looking at, OK, well, so if you're not going to spend that bulk of the money, what are you doing? And you're seeing him make some kind of questionable 
pitching decisions on guys who aren't sure things. You know, you saw the one-year deal with Matt Harvey not really work out. You know, saw the one-year deal with Alex Cobb work out, but he got injured. Um, you saw, you know, Jose Quintana, and he totally bombed. You know, you try to bring in Joe Madden's guy or whatever because he wants to do these one-year deals on these kind of unproven guys at this point in time. And, you know, you, even Michael Lorenzen is kind of, you know, kind of falling off a little bit as of late. And that was one of the one-year deals that was supposed to work. You know, Syndergaard's worked out. But, you know, it was encouraging to see him go after Garrett Cole really hard a couple off-seasons ago. But he hasn't been aggressive as far as pitching goes, really, in recent memory at all. And I think he's a little bit kind of scared because he's had so many big contracts not work out. But, you know, a part of that is also that he's not really going after positions of need to the highest level. And everyone knows that the past, you know, seven, eight years of Angels baseball have been foiled because of pitching. And this offseason, you're seeing Justin Verlander available, you know, and for the taking. Max Scherzer available. I know Robbie Ray's struggling, but, you know, he was available, you know, Kevin Gosman, so many, the pitching for Asian class was just absolutely loaded. And all he did was Syndergaard and Lorenzen. You know, I expect, you know, maybe Syndergaard, maybe go make a run at Scherzer, or, you know, bring in Verlander, you know, there's an injury risk there, but, you know, be aggressive. You have to be aggressive in this market and you have to be aggressive when you have the two best players in baseball. And I don't think Moreno has really let his GMs really spend that kind of money then you see Billy Epper go to the Mets and he's dropping money left and right on starting pitching, you know, Scherzer, Bassett, like he's going crazy. So I think there's some cultural issues from the top where the team just doesn't really seem to understand how much they need to win now with the two best players in baseball. Now you're talking about trading <laughs> and, you know, on the field, just it, it, it was the results show up on the field because the pitching has just been so lackluster for so long. And there's been some offensive issues too. They didn't go after a big time shortstop when that class was loaded as well in this free agent class and, you know, the middle infields really struggled. So I think a lot of the decisions up top have really affected them on the field. And, you know, then, you know, you're getting, you know, Joe Madden being fired and everything, whether you like that decision or not, it's like, you know, they try to change something. And the reality is that the thing that should have been changed was the aggression the team shows in the off season to really spend and be aggressive around the two fantastic pieces they have right now. And I think that that just creates a losing culture. And you saw some cultural issues kind of up and down the organization. You know, you saw this, this unfortunate kind of drug trafficking kind of thing that was going on with the whole Eric K, Tyler Skaggs thing. And that was a terrible situation. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. These kind of things keep kind of popping up. And this is kind of someone that was basically clubhouse wide. And, you know, you're just seeing this organization just seems to have this kind of culture problem. And that takes a long time to come out of. So, you know, and now you have, you know, Anthony Rondon making 35 million a year, you know, Trout making, I believe, 36 million a year. You have a lot of money tied up in the players and in Trout's case and soon to be Otani's case, you know, they are well deserving of that. But I mean, I don't think that Artie Moreno is really kind of letting his GMs kind of take advantage of being in that spot where you have those two big pieces to build around, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It seems like they mostly they tie up a lot of money to, like you said, big names just so they can draw in people like they they have uh, Josh Hamilton. Obviously, you know, guys like Rendon, um, uh, Albert Pujols, like they, they like the big names, but it's not always the big names that are going to help them produce these wins. And you play in a division that, OK, the Angel or the Athletics, they sold off Bassett, um, Olsen, um, what's his name? The third baseman, Carpenter, um, Manaya. They're probably going to trade Montas at some point. Like they're just tanking. They want to lose. And the Mariners, they're one of the biggest disappointments. They might be the only team more disappointing this season than my White Sox. <laughs> and, you know, they were supposed to be this great team after the offseason moves. Uh, the Houston Astros, obviously, they have Altuve still. But Correa moved on. You know, Jordan uh, Alvarez is amazing. And they find guys out of nowhere, it seems like, lately. Bregman's still there. They have Verlander and stuff. But, you know, they'll start to fall off eventually. And you just got to wonder if this Angels team, the owner, Artie Moreno, like you said, will kind of use this season as fuel. Like they're going to get another nine war season out of both Trout and Otani and have nothing to show for it. Do you think there's a chance that something happens that leads to positive change this offseason? It's tough because, you know, the Angels are in such a tough spot now as far as the coaching staff goes, too. So, you know, regardless of what happens this year, they have some tough decisions to make about, you know, who's going to be managing their team next year. And, you know, there tend to be options that pop up at the end of every season that we didn't really see coming. You know, I guess last year you could say Bob Melvin 
Um, let's see, I remember Dusty Baker that year, you know, Tony LaRusso that year. You know, there are guys that kind of show up. You know, people are mentioning, you know, Jim Leland could even come back, you know, due to the success that older managers like Dusty Baker and Buck Showalter are having. So as far as the manager goes, we'll kind of need to see if there's going to be someone like that that can pop up. That will be a great option. Or, you know, if Phil Nevin shows them enough to kind of keep going. But I think there's a lot of, you know, problems as far as how that's going to go. Because also, I mean, you know, Matt Wise has been, you know, in question this year a lot. You know, uh, I'm sure you saw, you know, Mike Trout was calling out Elvis Peguero tipping pitches. And, you know, it, it's kind of concerning that Mike Trout's the one calling that out. And he's noticing before the pitching coach, you know. So there's some there's a lot of questions as far as the coaching of this team goes, you know, in itself. And so it's just kind of tough because. You know, I would like to say that, you know, hopefully the Astros will fall off some time. And, you know, the A's are you know likely not going to be trying to win for a couple more years. They might be moving and all of that. You know, Seattle's kind of trending downwards after trending upwards. You know, you're kind of hoping that the Angels can finally enter that mix. But the franchise is in such limbo with the even the coaching staff being in, you know, having a lot of questions around that. It's just kind of really hard to guarantee anything for this Angels team before we kind of know what pieces are going to be in place, you know. Is Anthony Rendon going to be back next year? Is he going to play well next year? Because he hasn't played well since 2020, even when he's on the field, you know. And so I, I wish I could tell you that, you know, I was enthusiastic about next year and, you know, the future in general. But, you know, unless they really go on a run, which I'm not sure they're capable of doing because they didn't just go on a run these past, you know, 15 or so games, whatever it's been against lesser competition, you know, unless they end up kind of really turning around fast, you know, it's kind of hard for me to believe in, you know, what this team's going to be going forward. We both touched on Noah Syndergaard a little bit, Mr. Thor himself. Have you been okay with what you've seen from him so far this season? Because he went out there and shoved against the White Sox, but lots of guys do that lately. I'm curious to know what you think of, does he look healthy to you? Has he got the stuff that he once had with the Mets? Obviously, probably not with the Mets, but, you know, has he been a comparable, I don't even know if you you would consider him your number two right now? I think you can't call him the number two because Patrick Sandoval is having such a great year. But I do think that Syndergaard has been solid. I think that the numbers kind of don't necessarily tell the whole story as, as far as he goes. Um, you know, like, for instance, like a couple starts ago, he pitched. He had like two earned and six innings, which isn't, you know, Mets Syndergaard level necessarily, but close to. And, you know, that's a pretty, pretty good day. And then he got sent out there for a seventh inning or for an eighth inning. I believe it was seven earned in two innings. And he he ends up finishing the day was seven and a third and five earned runs. So it's kind of like, well, he probably shouldn't have even been in in that last inning, and then he gets lit up. So the numbers don't really look that great. And then, um, you know, the one of the criticisms of Joe Madden was always that he pulls pitchers too early. But if Joe Madden was here, that wouldn't have happened. You know, may, maybe Joe Madden wasn't so terrible and so old school and all that, you know. But that's the different discussion. But basically what I'm trying to say is I've seen plenty of starts where Syndergaard has been better than what the numbers say. And the thing that you got to think about is, you know, and, you know, you know, this is someone who covers baseball, you know, pitchers, usually their arms aren't really fully recovered until usually about the third season after, you know, they, you know, are post Tommy John surgery. So, you know, last year, Syndergaard got a little bit of work at the end of the season. But I think this year is also going to be a year where, you know, Syndergaard's arms isn't fully repaired yet. You know, you haven't seen the gas that you saw from him in New York, you know. And I so I think that the fact that he does have a sub four ERA and he has been putting up decent numbers this year is pretty encouraging. I know you'd like a little bit more for $21 million in a year. But I do think, like I said, he's been a little bit better than what the numbers say. And I think that it is encouraging if you want to bring him back because he's able to be, you know, a solid guy despite his arm. Just, I mean, his arm's absolutely not repaired just yet. Yeah, I totally understand that. Like Kopech's in year three after Tommy John. And yesterday he pitched okay, but he definitely looked like he had a little bit of arm fatigue. He's yet to throw a 100-mile-an-hour pitch since returning from Tommy John, and that's all he threw before the Tommy. But, you know, last year he was a reliever in the mid-threes for an ERA, pretty good for like a super weapon in the bullpen. This year as a starter, it's under three, and he's been magnificent. So, like you said, three-ish years since, I think Syndergaard could end up being something, you know, to kind of enter the twilight of his career, but we will see. The other player on the Angels that intrigues me the most that isn't considered like a superstar in the eyes of – the average baseball fan is your leadoff hitter, Taylor Ward. He seems to have that Tim Anderson like effect where as the leadoff guy, if he gets on base in the first inning, he's coming around to score and he's got a very high average. He can hit for power. He with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani protecting him in the lineup. 
you know, it, it's been really solid for him. And I'd like to know what your take is on Ward. Is he somebody that the Angels can kind of be excited about as like the leader of the depth, if you will? You got your superstars and then you got your depth. He's the leader of the depth, it seems like. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, OPS well over 900 there, you know, over 300 batting average. Like you mentioned, he can kind of do it all as a hitter. And that's kind of what's so disappointing about this year because, you know, we last year it was okay. You you know, Shoei Otani's elite. Uh, you develop Jared Walsh into an all-star. All you just need is Trout to come back. And then this year we get Trout back. He's playing just as well as he always does. Otani's playing just as well as he does. Then you find a true diamond in the rough in Taylor Ward. And the thing is, a lot of Angels fans really like Taylor Ward coming up the minor league system. They like what he had to show in the minor leagues. And he kind of had some – he had some clutch hits last year. Um, you know, I know he dealt with some injuries and things like that. So um, it was kind of tough a little bit there to kind of see the results really come to fruition last year. But this year, he's just off to an insane start. He can play in the corner outfield. He can play third base even if they need that with Rendon Hurt. So I, I love Taylor Ward for the future. He's still young, obviously. You know, he's hot. He knows he's hot right now. He he's gained so much confidence. You can tell on the field and in what he's saying off the field in interviews and things like that. So I absolutely think that Taylor Ward can be a cornerstone. I think he's really kind of picked it up. I mean, can you imagine if Anthony Rondon has the kind of year that he's had this year and there was no Taylor Ward? Like the Angels would have, what, 30 wins on the year? I mean, it, it would be even worse than what it would have been. It's already a dumpster fire. You know, I, I wouldn't even call it a dumpster fire if Taylor Ward wasn't playing this way. I don't even know what it would be. So, yeah, I love Taylor Ward. I think he could be a true cornerstone of this team. And they got to take advantage of it now while they don't have to pay him. Absolutely. I'm wishing him nothing but success. I hope he sticks around and is able to be part of that Angels team that gets over the hump. I'm I'm going to cross my fingers going into every season that this is the year where the Angels win the AL West. I had it this year, and obviously I think I'm a little off. The Astros look like that team, and you know I don't think the Mariners are as bad as they've played. I could see them having a strong second half. The A's are dog meat. So... You know, and they're going to – Billy Bean's got that team rebuilding. We'll see how long it takes them to get back up to where they were last year and the years preceding up to it. But um, really quick, as far as the Angels, is there any underrated Angels storyline that maybe the average fan doesn't know about that we haven't already discussed on this show that you'd like to put on the forefront? Maybe it's a prospect that you like or a guy, a depth piece on the team that's really been impressing you that you think can help them for a long time. Is there something along those lines? I'm going to, I'm going to bring it back to Patrick Sandoval. Cause I mean, last year you saw Patrick Sandoval really kind of grow, but you know, he had the injury in the second half of the season. You didn't really get to see it really show up kind of in, you know, you didn't get to see him have the innings, the strikeouts and all that. And he's improved just, he's not only improved, but I think he's an all-star this year. You know, I think he's been outstanding for the longest time this season. We were questioning if, if he was the best pitcher on the angels and not even Shohei Otani. And so I think the jump he's taking, you know, the guy that had a tough spring too. To be able to take that jump from 2019 being, you know, kind of, I mean, really an underwhelming bullpen guy to doing well in the bullpen, really stepping up when Quintana obviously had a down year last year. And then this year growing into, you know, a guy who you know I absolutely think should be an all-star. He's top 10 in ERA. I mean, you know, I think he's been excellent. I think that he'd be an ace on a lot of teams. And I think he's by far the biggest bright spot moving forward for the angels because pitching has been such a need for them for so long. That's great. Uh, you know, I hope he ends up, Oh man, I, I keeps going back to this. I just want them to be so good for the two guys at top at the top. So bad. There's a bit of breaking news on the bottom of the screen. That's being reported. Kevin Durant requested a trade from the Beautiful. Brooklyn nets. Okay. Do you have reaction to that? Are you a basketball fan? Obviously, I'm assuming you're either a Lakers or Clippers fan or both. I'm obviously a Bulls fan. Man, he'd look good in any of those three jerseys. You'd be surprised, man. I'm actually a Phoenix Suns fan. Oh, okay. Which uh, there's actually, you know, that's uh, had a pretty disappointing run there in the, in the game seven of the second round. That was pretty terrible. So uh, I'm not saying he's coming to the Suns. I absolutely don't think he is. But I remember there was a Suns podcaster that proposed this Kevin Durant trade and set the fan base on fire. So, uh, if Kevin Durant can come over to the Suns, you know, I'd be down that I'd kind of probably avoid that kind of game seven meltdown second round against against the Mavericks. Um, but man, I don't know. I think, like you said, you know, I think Lakers and Clippers would be pretty, I think he'd fit anywhere for being honest. You know, Bulls obviously would be great. You know, you get Lonzo back dishing the ball to Kevin Durant and everything. You know, DeMar's there. I think you got to think about court spacing, you know, how guys are certain certainly fit on the court together. But uh, he'd fit in a lot of places. Uh, 
I'm just wondering what's going on with Kyrie and what's going on with that team, the chemistry there, honestly. I don't know how you feel about it. It's weird, man. I honestly don't know if I've ever seen anything like it. It's like everywhere Kyrie goes, they end up being a good team, but something ends up happening where like there's friction between the players. Like it definitely happened in Boston. LeBron got up and got out of uh, Cleveland. I don't know if Kyrie had anything to do with it, but I mean, that's, it's crazy to me what's going on in Brooklyn. You're all LA except for basketball. Is that kind of what I'm picking up here? No, actually, I'm actually uh, from Phoenix. Uh, I actually still live there. Uh, So my basketball team's the Suns. You know, baseball angels uh college football usc I, I was a usc fan just since i was a kid i had a sibling that went there um then football i'd say cardinals you know la you know kind of they got the rams and Chargers and everything but it's mostly a raiders town and uh you know i just picked the team for for arizona so cardinals there you go uh i respect that i'm all chicago except for hockey i root for the new jersey devils okay. outside of chicago from that but you brought up usc and actually, before we get to that really quick, I want your thoughts, an outsider's perspective on the White Sox. I had that written down. What did you think you saw from, you know, this series and maybe following just baseball in general, what you've heard about the team over the course of the year so far? Yeah, I mean, I basically think that they're a team that has a lot of pieces, a lot of talent. And I know that, like, I've seen you on Twitter. You're, you're kind of fed up with Tony Larusa and, uh, you know, how that's going. And it's just kind of confusing because, you know, you see, you know, their arms in the rotation last year were outstanding. Um, you know, I think that they have a lot of talent this year, too. But, you know, some of them, it's not really kind of going well. You've seen some tough starts from Giolito lately. And you're seeing Tim Anderson, you're seeing Robert, you're seeing a lot of really strong guys in the lineup. And it just seems like the talent's just not getting put together, which happens sometimes. And, you know, you start to wonder, you know, obviously, you know, the it's, it was seen as a huge mistake for the White Sox to let go of Tony Larusa in the past. They, they've kind of been transparent about that. But the question is, you know, has the game kind of passed him by? You know, is he that guy right now? You know, can he be that guy? And, you know, I know that you and, and some fans really don't believe in him. So it's going to come down to potentially that in the offseason because the, the talent's there. The roster's there, I feel like, just for whatever reason. It's just kind of not getting put together. I know they had some injuries uh, early on, but I know Lance Lynn's come back. I think they're getting a little bit healthier, if I'm not mistaken. So, if they can't make a second half run in a, you know, kind of weaker division, you know, I think that, you know, there might have to be some kind of, I don't know about a fire sale as far as the talent goes, but it might have to be some kind of changes. You see fire Tony on the bottom, might have to be some coaching changes, you know? Yeah. Uh, we're not big fans of Tony LaRusa. Um, Leary Garcia plays way too often he's the MLB's leader in least amount of war so far this season. And he doesn't even qualify to be like, you know, amongst the league leaders and stuff because he doesn't have enough plate appearances and his war is still that low, which probably proves, proves even though he doesn't qualify, he's still playing too much and he always comes up to big at-bats. You might have noticed your Angels got a little lucky. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he came up to bat though yesterday in a in a high-pressure situation. I believe the bases were loaded and instead of pinch hitting for Andrew Vaughn or Jake Berger who have both come up rather clutch so far this season – Tony just let it ride, and he put up a non-competitive swing and miss, strike three, you're out. So it's tough over there right now, you know. Um, they have similar talent levels to the Angels. Obviously, they don't have a Shohei or a Trout, but, like, guys who are just, like, a tick below that, and it's just not coming together, like you said. So, But I do want to touch on that USC news. Obviously, it's probably the biggest sports story of the day so far. Yeah, Maybe Durant, I don't know. I, I meant to say – that long before I heard the Durant news, but USC and UCLA making a move to the Big Ten. They're, they're saying the announcement could be as soon as today after reports this morning were just like, oh, it's in talks, but now they're saying it could be today. As a USC guy, what's your takeaway from this news? It's complicated because I truly do think there's kind of two sides to it. You know, if, if it comes to the, you know, the pro side, you want them to go to the Big Ten because, you know, you're, you're fed up with this Pac-12 media deal that's been terrible for so long that has been hurting the Pac-12 for so long. You're fed up with the fact that all the games are at night when all the voters are asleep, you know. Um, you're fed up with the conference just being incompetent, honestly. And you're looking at it as, okay, so Texas and Oklahoma moved to the SEC. You know super conferences are preferable for a lot of these other bigger conferences, like the Big Ten. You know, it's, I've seen the Big Ten are the two best, obviously. So if you want to move conferences and want to get out of that media deal and want to get out of you know, the lack of exposure that the Pac-12 is probably giving USC, things like that, the Big Ten needs to be that next option. Because if you go to the Big 12, well, they already just expanded with teams like 
um, you know, teams like Cincinnati, they just brought in BYU. They brought in a bunch of teams, you know, last offseason. So you're kind of looking at the Big Ten is that next move. But then there's the con side that says, you know, do you really want to leave the Pac-12, which you're probably going to dominate at least starting in probably, you know, 2023 when, you know, Lincoln Riley kind of really gets going and gets his chance to really kind of build the program because it's such a weak conference around you. You have such a great history dominating it. So I think there's two sides. I mean, as far as where I stand, I'm actually cool with it because, you know, I understand the tradition's not necessarily there and that, you know, we're kind of have to, you know, throw away the Rose Bowl. I mean, the Rose Bowl used to just be USC versus whoever wins the Big Ten, you know. And now, you know, that kind of tradition's gone. And, you know, a lot of people from the Midwest kind of see it as like a Midwestern conference. Now you're adding Maryland and, and Rutgers and UCLA and USC, and it's kind of not being that regional thing anymore. But for USC, I really think it's they need to move conferences eventually because of the whole media situation. And because the conference is just really bad in the Pac-12, honestly. And the Pac-12 needs USC more than USC needs the Pac-12, if that makes sense, due to the brand that USC is and tradition that they have. And, you know, when USC had an elite coach last and Pete Carroll, they ran the Big Ten. You know, they, they played five New Year's Six Bowl games against the Big Ten. One of them was for a national championship. They won all five of them. Uh, one of them was by 14. Or, or the, the closest game was by 14 points. You know, they dominated them. And – they scheduled Ohio State a couple of times in there in the regular season. They blew them out one year and they beat them the next. So, you know, if when USC is at their best, they can absolutely compete in the Big Ten. Could they this year in year one under Riley? Absolutely not, in my opinion. Could they by the time they get there in 2024? I absolutely think so. It's very interesting. I actually like hearing that perspective of like, hey, I see both sides to it. But imagine like a week nine game between Rutgers and USC. I don't know if I've ever heard of college football teams traveling that far for a regular season game like that, like a regular season in conference game. Sure. Out of conference, of course, especially when it comes to like playoffs and bowl games and stuff, but man, it's crazy to me. But at the same time, from like a positive side of things, imagine like a, a week 13, like right before the big 10 championship, like, Oh, USC has Michigan state and they're both a one loss team. And the winner is going to go play Michigan or Ohio State, uh, you know, depending on how the alignment is by that point in the Big Ten Championship, and the winner is going to go to the college football playoff. Like, sign me up for that. But, you know, there are some Midwest hardos out here who are like, I want the Midwest only in the Big Ten. But that ship has already kind of sailed. Like you said, they're already as west as Nebraska and as east as New Jersey. So, like, you know, the Big Ten being a Midwest brand, it's always going to, like, have its central location, Illinois, Wisconsin, Ohio State, Michigan, you know, all those teams, Northwestern, but Iowa, shout out my Iowa friends. There are plenty of them. I have more Iowa friends than any other Big Ten. It's weird how Illinois just pumps Iowa more than any other Big Ten school. But um, yeah, it would be really interesting. And I know you do a great job covering them for Reign of Troy at the Fan Sided Networks. Would you like to promote all of your work and where people can find you on social media? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter as uh, Vinny has it right there at Evan K Desai, D-E-S-A-I for Desai. And uh, you can find me at halohangout.com, reignoftroy.com, reignoftroy, obviously the USC coverage, Halo Hangout for uh, for the Angels. Um, you know, I do about, you know, about 30, 35 articles a week on both, si- both sites. So you'll kind of be able to see a lot from me there. You know, uh, the grind never stops, even this this boring part of the college football offseason, you know. So uh, there's going to be a lot you can find for me. You know, hopefully you enjoy. I love it, Evan. You're great with the work. You remind me. You remind me of what makes Fanside a great. Just somebody who's so passionate about their favorite teams, just pumping out content left and right. You know, I appreciate that. So I can't thank you enough for coming on our show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you having me. For real, it was a good time. Absolutely. We're going to have you back. Uh, maybe towards the end of the season, we can recap what was the second half MVP winning season for Shohei Otani. Maybe they go on a run. Maybe you can come be a White Sox fan for an October run. You know, maybe one of our teams is going to figure it out by the end of the season. Sure. That's Absolutely. my prediction. So hopefully, you know, hopefully it's a strong second half for both. But we'll talk to you at that point in time. And thank you again for coming on. Yeah, again, thank you, man, too, for real. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Um, Everybody, we're going to send you to a quick commercial break. Zim, Joe, Vinny, and Gonzo. 
Join these White Sox fanatics every Monday night for the South Burbs Hitmen. You're going to be treated to great guests, top analysis, smart debates. South Burbs Hitmen with Zim, Joe, Benny, and Gonzo only on the Barroom Network. Welcome back to Crosstown Crosstalk, where I would like to just extend my deepest thank you to Evan Desai of Halo Hangout and Reign of Troy, obviously covering the Los Angeles Angels and the USC Trojans of college. And man, what a show. I mean, I wanted this to be the Shohei Otani episode. I brought in the perfect guest. And Fansided is the best place in the world to get your coverage um, in written word for your favorite sports teams. And there is a page for every sports team. And you think it just stops at the sports? Wrong. If you watch Bar Down Talking Hockey every Wednesday, you know Frankie Mueller. He's a co-host of the show. He covers video games for Fansided. Fansided has everything. You want to talk about movies? You want to talk about music? You want to talk about Game of Thrones, Star Wars, nerdy stuff? You go check it out on fansided.com. It is outstanding stuff. And speaking of fansided.com, earlier today, I covered the White Sox. They stink. They absolutely stink. And man, Tony LaRusso's killing this team. And no, Rick Hahn's not perfect. Rick Hahn has a roster where Gavin Sheets and Andrew Vaughn are necessary outfielders, even though they're first baseman. He doesn't get a pass for that. He also doesn't get a pass for just being so soft with the Tony LaRusso thing. I would love for him to come out tomorrow and just be like, hey, I didn't want Tony LaRusso as the manager. It's not my fault Yuri Garcia plays every day. Tony wanted him signed, and what was I supposed to do? Tell Jerry I don't want to sign your manager's guy? That's just not how it's going to work for the White Sox. I feel so bad for people who blame Rick Hahn more than they blame Tony LaRusso. Of course, Rick Hahn deserves some blame. The bad boy deserves blame. Everyone deserves some blame for what's going on with the White Sox so far this season. But I'm telling you right now, Tony LaRusso is killing this team. Man, it reminds me of Moneyball. In Moneyball, when um, Art Howe would not play Billy Bean's roster the way that Billy Bean constructed it to be played. He wanted Hatterberg at first, no matter what. Carlos Pena's numbers were, they were really good. They were all-star level numbers, but it was individual statistics where they the statistics that Hatterberg, or not Hatterberg, the statistics that Billy Bean and now I'm drawing a blank on Jonah Hill's character's name, um, Peter Brand, they came up with, you know, why Hatterberg should be playing first base every single day over Pena. And um, Art Howe eventually gets fired or not. Yeah, he gets fired. I guess he tells him to F you and whatnot. And they start playing. They start playing Hatterberg at first, and the team starts winning because they bring in a manager who starts playing the roster the way it's designed to be played, and they start winning a bunch in a row, make the playoffs. Obviously, they fall just short in the postseason, but Rick Hahn needs to channel his inner Billy Bean. Billy Bean traded Pena, so Hatterberg had no choice but to be the first baseman. He needs to trade Leary Garcia or DFA him or something. Make it where Tony La Russa cannot play him. And I feel bad about the whole Gavin Cheats thing. Gavin Cheats was on this show. He was on this air. He was a tremendous guest, an absolutely tremendous guest. Okay. And nice guy, but Tony LaRusso uses him way too much simply because he's a lefty. He'll play that matchup game to the detriment of the White Sox no matter what, and he is stuck in his ways, and I just am, I'm disgusted with it. I can't wait till he's no longer the manager of the team. Um, on the other side of town, the Chicago Cubs, they came up with a big series win over the St. Louis Cardinals over the weekend, and this week they have been playing the Cincinnati Reds in what I like to call the, the terrible team bowl, I guess you call it. And they're the two worst teams in the NL Central Division. They might be the two worst teams in the National League. And it's a preview of the great, wonderful tradition that is that cornfield in Iowa. The MLB decided to put the Cubs and the Reds at Field of Dreams. The White Sox and Yankees should be playing in that game every single year, no matter what. But it also should at least, at minimum, include the White Sox. Shoeless Joe Jackson played for the White Sox. Ray Kinsella is a White Sox fan. 
and his dad was a Yankee fan. Okay. That's why they had those two teams play. But no, we get the Cubs and the Reds who are irrelevant to the story of shoeless Joe Jackson and the Black Sox. I guess the Reds, fair point, the Reds were the team the White Sox lost to on purpose in the World Series. But why are you having them play the Cubs? I get the big brand, make money. The Cubs are awful. They're going to lose 100 games. And we're putting them on national TV against the other NL team that's going to lose 100 games in the Cincinnati Reds. Honestly, I just can't believe that that's what it's going to be. And guess what? I'm a sucker. I'm going to watch it. It's a Thursday night in Dryersville, Iowa. Like, of course I'm watching it. I'm Vinny. But it's just, you know, the Cubs and the White Sox are both disgusting disgraces in their own different ways right now. And I can't wait till that part is over because in 2015 or in 2016, at the end of the season, like December, it looked like by 2022, the White Sox and the Cubs could have a legitimate chance to have a red line World Series. Rizzo, Bryant, Baez, Schwarber, Lester, Hendricks, Arietta, all in the height of their powers. And then they all started to suck. And the Cubs let every each and every one of them go for a variety of different reasons. And now they're terrible. And the White Sox were coming up. They signed Robert. They got Jimenez and Cease from the Cubs. They got Giolito, Lopez, and Dunning, who became Lynn from the Nationals. They got uh, Yohan Moncada and Michael Kopech from the Red Sox for sale. Um, it was just unbelievably bright of a future at that point in time. And now because of incompetence and bad ownership and poor decision-making. There's a piece on thewindycity.com of Theo Epstein's three biggest mistakes as president of the Chicago Cubs on thewindycity.com. Go check it out. I'm sure I'll be writing a piece on that about Rick Hahn in the near future. One of them will be allowing Jerry to force Tony La Russa on him and keep his roster vision from reaching its max potential. And... If I was Rick Hahn, I would resign tomorrow, go to a different team and show everybody what I actually am because it's just not, it's not fair. And, you know, we'll see what it becomes, but, you know, at least my guy, Mike North decided to go on twitter.com and post a video, taking a dump on Tony LaRusso and his decision-making from last night's game, calling him soft, doing soft managing, call them the second losingest manager of all time, which is also true. In addition to him being the second winningest manager, of all time. Um, yeah, shout out to you, Mike. I don't know if you're conceding that Tony LaRusso sucks. Um, I'm not conceding that Tony LaRusso sucks because I was on that wagon the whole time. But I will say this Rick Hahn's roster construction isn't perfect. Like, there's first baseman playing right field. I wanted them to sign a right fielder so bad. I wanted Conforto. Conforto's out for the year. It's obviously the reason it didn't happen. But, you know. It's just, it's it, everybody deserves blame, but nobody's going to tell me that the person that doesn't deserve the most blame is Tony LaRussa, which in turn turns to Jerry Reinsdorf, who forced Tony LaRussa down all of our throats. And now we have two bad baseball teams in Chicago. So, you know, earlier this week, yesterday, John Bucigras of ESPN came on Bar Down Talking Hockey and gave Frank Mueller and I an outstanding. 35-minute interview talking about the Colorado Avalanche winning the Stanley Cup. You know, we went in depth on Kale McCarr. We talked about New Jersey with Jack Hughes, of course, Chicago with the idea of trading Patrick Kane or Alex Debrinkit and, you know, hiring Luke Richardson as the head coach. We talked about comparing Trevor Zegris to Pavel Datsuk way back when. We'll talk about Stamkos and the Lightning. I mean, it was just a wonderful hockey interview. It's honestly like the great hockey discussion you could possibly listen to at this point coming from the barroom network. I honestly think, I don't know if Aldo would agree with me on this, the great director of the barroom network. I think it's the best hockey production we've had at the barroom network. And I'm extremely proud of the way that it went. I, I think I watched it three times and right when Bucci's interview, yeah, yeah, me and Frankie talked about the Stanley cup and you know, the hockey hall of fame and for an hour after it was over, but I just kept rewinding the Bucci part. It was just so perfect to me it's one of the most it's probably the proudest i've ever been of a production that we came up with so everybody needs to go back and check that out right now the barroom network's going to the moon guys 
you know, I don't know where my career's taking me and where all that stuff is going to go. But man, the Barroom Network is just so sweet. I don't know what you're doing not watching all the shows on there. You got the double A team, obviously, South Ribs Hitman on Monday. We're off on Monday because of 4th of July, but we cover the White Sox every single week. There's obviously this show, Talking Baseball. There's plenty of Bulls coverage when the season rolls around. The NFL season is right around the corner. And wow, it's just going to be great stuff. Obviously, with this Kevin Durant stuff, there's going to be no place better place to get your programming on these breaking topics than the Barroom Network. And then, of course, you can head on over to Fansided and read all about it. I'm drawing a blank on the fan-sided net page, but obviously Pippin Ain't Easy is the Bulls page, and obviously we cover the Bulls at thewindycity.com as well. And, you know, you need to read all that basketball stuff going on over there. So this was a great show. I loved having Evan on to talk about the Angels and what's going on with Shohei Otani. And let me ride the point real home really quick before we get on out of here. Shohei Otani is an elite hitter. Shohei Otani is an elite pitcher. That has never happened at the same time. Babe Ruth was an elite pitcher with the Boston Red Sox. Then the Red Sox owner wanted to finance a Broadway musical called No No Nanette and sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $250,000, which I don't even know what that's equivalent to with today's currency. It's well over millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he went to the Yankees, dropped the whole pitching thing, started playing right field and the rest, as they say, is history with the 708 home runs, I think it was, that he hit. And, you know, he was one of the greatest two-way players ever, but he never really was two-way at the same time. Otani is two-way at the same time. He is a prolific home run hitter with an under three ERA. That has never happened before. Okay, Babe Ruth played in a time. One time, he, Babe Ruth led the league with 11 home runs. Think about that for a minute. You know, the White Sox are one of the worst home run hitting teams in the league, and they'll have many players well over 11 home runs, okay? Like, that's just insane to think about what Otani's doing. I often wonder, I always say it's never going to happen again, but then I'm like, wait a minute. The reason it hasn't happened already before is probably because guys drop one or the other at certain points in their development, right? Like when you're 15, a coach will come up to you and say, okay, kid. You're a good pitcher and you're a good hitter, but you're going to become great at one of the two. Pick one. And then they go and pick one. Like, maybe now that Otani is, there will be the Shohei Otani effect where kids will realize, no, screw you, coach. I want to be like Otani. I'm going to go out there and do both. I know I only picked one. I picked hitting. I kind of regret it. I, I like pitching more these days as an adult, but... Why pick? Why not just ride it out and see? Then then you could become like Oscar Colas, who is the Chicago White Sox prospect. He was a two-way player. And then he kind of started to suck at pitching, and then he dropped it. That's okay. If you suck, but you don't want it to deteriorate the other thing that you're really good at, like hitting, I get that. But until you start to suck at one or the other, keep doing both. Otani is eventually going to suck at one. I don't know which one he's going to suck at first. I assume his longevity in hitting will last longer than his longevity in pitching because every single person, no matter what level you take baseball, has a finite number of pitches in their arm. And some guys have more than others. Hopefully Otani has a whole bunch. But I'm going to drive the point home again. He is the most spectacular athlete in the world. And you get to live at the exact same time as him. Okay, you're not reading about Shohei Otani in your grandfather's uh, baseball encyclopedia. Okay, you you're literally get the chance. If you go on your MLB app and you see that Shohei Otani is pitching that day and you got nothing to do, it's must-see TV because nobody else can do it as of right now. Kids might be able to grow up and learn. Like, I, I do think it's no coincidence that now that Pavel Datsuk is retired and Patrick Kane is retired or not retired is in his mid thirties. So, you know, kids who are 18, 19, 20 years old were young enough to watch him as kids. The, the kids are getting silkier now with their hands. You know, they're trying things like Zegris flipping the puck over to Milano to hit it in the net. Maybe Zegris never learns those things. If guys like that don't exist. And so, Maybe 10 years from now when Shohei Otani's retired and or about to retire, 
there will be other two-way players who are like, yeah, if Shohei Otani never existed, I would have never done this. So I'm hoping that's the case because I don't want I don't want to live in a world without two-way players once Otani's done. So that's our show. It was a great episode talking about you know the Los Angeles Angels got a little bit into the UFC, USC breaking news, a little bit of Kevin Durant breaking news, requesting a trade from the Brooklyn Nets. It's going to be interesting to see what team is able to land him. But you know when that does happen, we will be here at the Barroom Network to talk about it with you, and I'm very excited about it. Thank you to everybody in the chat for chiming in. I know we've had my mom, Lisa, in the chat. Thank you for watching. Aldo, you are the best. Joe Mandel, you are also the best. Um, If you're watching but haven't commented, you know I appreciate you very much, and I'm very excited to have you here. And go check out that Bucci-Grass interview, man. It's the best thing I've ever been a part of at, at anything. I honestly think it's the most proud work I've ever done. So go check it out, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you could find your podcasts, YouTube. It's on Twitter. There was a video I posted of Jack Hughes' conversation with Bucci. Got over 10,000 views yesterday. I got one about talking about the Blackhawks going up later today. Hopefully that one gets a lot of views too. Make sure you check it all out and make sure you're following me at Vinny Parisi on Twitter. And as always, thank you for listening. 